welcome to this edition of Origins. Hello, I'm your host, Russ Bixler, and on this program we deal with the creation evolution controversy. Our guest today is Greg Hull, the executive director of the Bible Science Association of Minneapolis. Greg, I understand your background is in philosophy. That's right. Well, how did you get to be the head of a Bible Science Association? Well, a lot of people wonder that, Russ. I have a bachelor's degree in sociology and philosophy from St. Cloud State University, and then a master's degree in philosophy of religion from Denver Seminary. A number of years back, the board of directors of Bible Science really took a look at the whole origins question and the whole origins issue, and they said, you know, this at its core is not a science issue. It gets fought in the science arena a lot, but at its core, it's a worldview issue. Between creation between and evolution. Between creation and evolution. At its core, it's a worldview issue. It's a philosophy theology issue. And so uh, when they were needing a, an executive director, they looked around for someone whose education was in philosophy and theology. And that's exactly where uh, I did most of my work, especially okay. in graduate school. Well, Greg, I'm glad you said that because that's one of the things we pointed out in so many of these programs. When we deal with science, uh, we often point out, but this is not the real problem. The real problem is that people want to avoid having to deal with the Creator. That's correct. That is a philosophical and a theological question. At its core, it is. Yeah. Well, what's our subject for the day? Well, I want to talk about worldviews and what a worldview is and how it ties into the origins issue. Now, worldview, as a phrase, is, is kind of a buzzword these days, it yeah. seems, especially in the church. Everybody talks about worldviews. But what not a lot of people do, they don't stop and say, well, what do we mean? You know, what is a worldview? And so that's what I'd like to talk about and kind of explain in its very broad setting what a worldview is. Let me start by telling a little story. There was an experiment done a few years back by some scientists that were trying to understand how the eye and the brain worked and how they related to each other. And what they did is they got a group of volunteers together who agreed for a period of time to wear a special set of glasses. These, these scientists had these special glasses made and the volunteers had to wear them every waking minute. They, couldn't, they, they weren't supposed to take them off, they were supposed to keep them on every waking minute. All right, so from the time they got up to the time they went to bed. The thing that was special about the glasses is that they made everything look upside down. Oh. So when you saw it, you saw everything inverted. Now, when the volunteers started wearing the glasses, of course, it was kind of funny because they stumbled around and they ran into things and they knocked things over and they reached for things that weren't there. And, and it, you know, it was kind of entertaining in a way. But what went on after a few days is... You had to be a good sport to get you, in there. You, you had to be a good sport. I think you probably had to be kind of tough because I would think the bruises would hurt, you know. Um, but what happened to these folks after a few days, the disorientation kind of faded away and they started to be able to function pretty well. They could get by real well seeing everything upside down. They got used to seeing the world that way. Now, I don't know if they drove, but they were able to function, you know, they, they weren't knocking things over anymore. And if you watched them, you wouldn't necessarily know that the glasses that they were wearing were special glasses. They would look just like a pair of eyeglasses. Well, finally the experiment ended and they had to quit wearing the glasses and they gave them back. And what was interesting is these people went through a, a similar period of disorientation. They had to get used to seeing the world right side up again. And they went through the same kind of stumbling, knocking over, running into thing for a few days that they had when they first started wearing the glasses. I think that's interesting because uh, 
the human eye actually shows us things upside down, but the brain turns it right Turn, side turns up. Turns it around. Well, those eyeglasses, I explain to people, can be seen as a worldview. Worldview can be understood to be like a pair of eyeglasses. It's what helps us make sense of the world. It's the, it's the lenses through which we see our experience and make sense of it. Now, in my study of world religions and the philosophy of religion, one of the things that I found is that everybody's worldview has the same fundamental elements. Just like every pair of glasses you see works the same way with the height of the lens and the thickness and the curvature. Now, not every lens is the same, but, they, but it works the same. Worldviews have the same fundamental elements. And of course, as the world goes, and all of the different possible worldviews, there's lots of different answers given to the question. But the worldview itself has the similar elements. And Russ, the interesting thing about this is that if you can get kind of a hold of these elements that I'm going to talk about, and you can remember them, as you watch movies, as you listen to music, as you hear people talk, as you read editorials in the paper, as you listen to the politicians arguing in favor of one bill instead of another, the whole gamut of life, if you watch and you ask yourself, now what does this person or this artist or this performer have as his or her worldview, you'll start to really understand why they come to the conclusions that they do about life. If you understand a politician's worldview, you'll understand why he or she supports the bills or opposes the bills that they do. If you understand a teacher's worldview, you'll understand why they teach the way they teach, and on and on. And so even within origins, this is important because I want to show how this ties, how worldviews tie into origins. Its application becomes much broader than just in origins. It can be applied to all of life. The first element that's in anybody's worldview is the question, how do we know? How do we know anything? How do we know, say, that we're here? How do we know that uh, Bill Clinton is President of the United States in 1993? How do we know what our birthdays are? How do we know anything? Very closely tied to the question of knowledge, how do we know, is the question of truth. What is truth? What I find interesting is that a majority of people today say that there's no such thing as absolute truth. And when they say that, they make an assertion that they claim to know something, that truth isn't absolute. Uh, scientists that work in a laboratory and do experiments when they're done claim to know something. They claim to know that something's true. So the question is, how do we know? Now, in historic philosophy, there's all sorts of answers to this question. And even within the world today, there's all sorts of answers to this question. If we go back, what most people know is the scientific method uh, was historically known as empiricism. Empiricism. The empirical world is the world in which we live and move and have our being. It's the world that we can put on the scale and weigh, that we can, that we can taste, we can touch, we can smell. It's the sense world, right. Now there was a school of thought historically, uh, came out of Great Britain, interestingly enough, they were known as the British empiricists, a group of philosophers that said, look, the empirical method and the empirical way of knowing is the only possible way that we can know. That's it. 
Uh, John Locke proposed that. He's the one that said babies are born with a, a blank mind, the tabla rasa. That infant's mind is blank. And experience is going to write on that blank tablet. And as it writes, the child will learn, and it'll put the things together. And so empiricism was the way of knowing. Now, empiricism is certainly uh, an important way of knowing. Uh, we do know certain things empirically, and this is important when it comes to things like building bridges and making lights that work and those sorts of things. But empiricism by itself can't explain all of life. It's, it's, an, it's a necessary way of knowing, but it's not necessarily a sufficient way of knowing. You can't use the empirical method to prove that the empirical method is valid. And there were some people that realized that. And so they said, well, our minds use rationality. And so there came to be a group of people called rationalists. And the image of the rationalists that I give is like Sherlock Holmes. You know, there's Sherlock Holmes. He's sitting in front of his fireplace with his pipe, and the poor uh, victim of some heinous crime is there appealing for his help. And she or he explain the elements of the case, and Holmes sitting there, never seeing the crime scene, never hearing anything other than what the person says, is able to rationally deduce who done it. And of course, the only reason he ever gets out of the chair to go visit the crime scene is because either some piece of information he doesn't have to do his rational deduction or to prove that his rational deduction is indeed correct. Now, the rationalists played an important part, but of course there are certain things in life that seem to go beyond the rational in a comprehensive sense. And so there were a group of people that put the two together and they were rational empiricists. But there again, even within, there were some problems within rationalism. And so there got to be a group of people, and there's different words, I call them existentialists. Now, existentialists. That's a 50 cent college word, if there ever was one. It's based on the root word of existence. And what these people said is, hey, the only way we know is within our experience. We experience truth. We experience knowledge. Um, it's something that we discover within us, and, and it isn't absolute. What's true for you may be true for you, and what's true for me may be true for me, but we know primarily through our feelings. Now, other people call this subjectivism or hedonism. There's different words. I call it uh, existentialism. Probably one of the best examples I ever saw that a lot of people would identify with would be in the Star Wars movie. You remember the Star Wars movie where Luke Skywalker, the young disciple of the old master Obi-Wan Kenobi, is trying to be a Jedi Knight. And he's trying to use his lightsaber. And Obi-Wan is trying to teach him how to use this. And finally, he says, trust your feelings, Luke. And he takes and covers up Luke's eyes so he can no longer see, wipes out the empirical, just leaves him in this world, and Luke is supposed to do it, and all of a sudden he does. He's able to. And on through the movie, the old master keeps saying, trust your feelings, trust your feelings. That's kind of the existential point of view. Trust your feelings. It's where a lot of people are within our culture today. They know what's true because they feel it. They've had it in personal experience. So the first question we ask when we're trying to discover anybody's worldview is, hey, how do, we, how do they know? How do we know? Whenever they make an assertion of truth, how do they justify it? What's the basis of it? Now, that's the first element. Closely tied 
with that becomes the second element of, the, of their worldview, and that's the question, what's really real? A little bit redundant, what's really real? Now we know the table is real, you know, we can feel it, we go back to our empirical method, we can feel it and experience it, sorts of things, but we know that it doesn't have an ultimate reality to it because one, it had a beginning and it will have an end, you know, it isn't, it's impermanent in that sense, um, it's, it's temporary, we know it's real, but it's not, it's not fundamentally real, it's not really real. This is a real, uh, comes back, I tell you, you've got to uh, understand this in terms of spirituality. Because that's where uh, the ultimate reality tends to be found. Is God there? Is there a God? Does God exist? If so, what's he like? What's it mean to be human? What is it that makes a human being a human being as opposed from elephants and uh, rocks and other things. Now, in technical philosophy, this branch of study is actually referred to as metaphysics. We owe that to Aristotle, who wrote a book which he called Physics, which was the physical world, his observations of the physical world, and then he went wrote the next book, that which is beyond the physical. He called it metaphysics, beyond the physical. But it has to do with spirituality. Within world religions, very broadly, there's only three options here in terms of how we answer this question, what's really real or what's the nature of spiritual reality. The first is historic atheism. And atheism says the only thing that's really real is the material world. That's it. This is it. This is all there is. The world that we see, taste, touch, smell, weigh, that's all that's really real. And there isn't anything else. At the other end of the spectrum are the pantheists and the people in Eastern religions that say nothing is really real. Or technically they may say the spiritual world is the one that's really real. But the physical world really isn't real. It's not really here. In between the two, of course, are the different theistic religions which say, now wait a minute. The physical world really is here. The physical world really is here. But it's not all there is. In addition to the physical world, there's a spiritual reality that exists related to it somehow. Now this would be all of the theistic religions. This would be Christianity, this would be Judaism, this would be Islam. The world's great theistic religions would fit here. And of course the debate amongst them then becomes how do these two interact with each other, or do they? Do they interact with each other, and if so, how? And of course, for, for Christians, we say, very much so, there's interaction. Um, we pray, because when we pray, we believe there's someone out here, God, listening to our prayers, and who will respond. So we believe our prayers work this way. We believe that the miraculous, or God's action, works this way, that he enters time and space. And so that there's, there's a definite interaction. Now the deists, if you go back in history, had a little different view. They said, yeah, the, 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 the material's real and there might be a spiritual reality, but hey, there's this great gulf fixed between it. There's no interaction between the two. God created things and walked away. Walked away, yeah, right, exactly. The, the clockmaker that 
built a clock, wound it up, and he's, he's been gone a long time. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so you see there's the, the question within the theistic religions becomes the interaction. And so the answer to the question, what's really real, or what's the nature of spiritual reality, as far as all of the world religions go, fit into one of these three broad categories. This is all there is. But you begin to see how the two elements of a worldview, how do we know and what's really real, start to tie together. Because if I start out by saying, hey, the only thing that exists is the material world, I'm almost stuck with saying the only way that I can know anything is through empiricism. Because that's all there is. That's all there is. There isn't anything else by which to know. Now, I might, I might try to use my rational mind to understand that, empiric that empirical world. Or I might finally give up on it and say, who knows? And I'm just going to go out and whatever somehow means something to me within my experience I'm going to go with. But one of the things that you could never do if you were an atheist is make reference to revelation. Christians say one of the ways that we know things is through revelation. God revealed information out here to us in here. And so one of the ways that I can know things out here even though I don't exist out there in the spiritual world, is through revelation. But you see, the atheist can never say that because there's nothing out there that's going to reveal anything to him. Okay? The other question that you begin to ask, you know, that everybody asks sooner or later is, hey, how did we get here? I mean, we're here. Obviously, if I'm not here, who's talking? You know, kind of a, would be the Western way of, of saying it, of looking at it. We say, how is it that I'm here today? Well, if I'm going to say that the only thing in spirit that's really real is the physical world, I have to look for a physical cause to explain how it is that I got here. I can make no appeal to any kind of a supernatural intervention. So the first question, how do we know? And what's the nature of truth? The second question comes out, what's really real? What's the nature of the spiritual reality? Does it exist? If so, what's it like? What are its characteristics? The third point of anybody's worldview becomes their morality or their ethics. What's right and wrong? What's right or wrong? What virtues do we cultivate? What vices do we discourage? What's, what's right and wrong? What's the nature of morality? Is it okay to kill Unborn babies? To abort babies? Is it okay to take old people in nursing homes who no longer know who they are or where they are and not administer antibiotics to them and go ahead and just let them die? Um, under what circumstances is it okay to, to put people in a prison? In Nazi Germany, they said a Christian, being a Christian or being a Jew was sufficient reason to put a person in, in a prison. Well, what's right and what's wrong? That becomes the third point to anybody's worldview. How do we determine morality? Now, here again, you see how the elements tie together to form a coherent whole, a coherent unit. Because if I say that revelation is a means of knowledge, and if I say that there's more to the world than just the material world, 
my way of determining right or wrong is going to be based on my understanding of the supernatural world. At the same time, if I'm going to be a pure empiricist, I'm going to say the empirical world is all that exists, I've got a whole different means of determining right and wrong and defining right and wrong. Then I'm left by saying basically whatever 51% of the people say is okay, is okay. There's no other way to really determine it, or it's whatever becomes expedient is okay. Whatever works is okay. Could you comment further about whatever 51% of the people say is right? Yeah. Because I think that's a big issue with us today. Absolutely it's a big issue today. If this is all there is, if atheism is true and materialism is true, we have a real question on what are we going to base our ethics on? How are we going to determine morality? What it comes down to is basically opinion. Somebody's opinion... Majority opinion. Well, somebody's opinion is going to be the one that's going to be decided on. Within a democratic society, we would have to say the majority opinion is okay. So if 51% of the people say it's okay to abort babies, it's okay to abort babies. There's no other thing that we could appeal to other than whatever 51%, unless we want to go to some form of a, of a tyranny or a ruling elite. Now, I don't believe 51% of the people in Nazi Germany said it was okay to uh, kill Jews. 51% of the people probably didn't know what was happening. What happened there is the person that was in charge of the guns and the bullets decided what was right and wrong. So you, you're left there with whoever is the most powerful, might makes right, in that kind of a situation. And ultimately, if atheism is true, there becomes no other way to determine right and wrong. We're left with that, that, that kind of a, of a moral dilemma which there's no way to determine. There's no way, uh, say, to determine the morality of distributing condoms in high schools. You would have to say, well, if most of the parents don't object, must be okay. Or you could even go on and say, wait a minute, the greatest good for the greatest number. We can justify it based on the greatest good for the greatest number. And even if the masses aren't smart enough to figure it out for themselves, some ruling group of people will have to be smart enough to benevolently decide what in fact is happening. So the three elements to a worldview. First, how do we know? What's the nature of truth? Secondly, what's really real? What's the nature of spirituality? And the third point, what's right or wrong? Ethics, morality. How do we determine what's right and wrong? Russ, as you're listening to a politician giving a speech, whether he's the president or somebody else in the United States. You can listen to a college professor if you, were, if you were in college. If you were to watch TV, music, listen to music, and you start to ask yourself these questions for the person that's speaking, for the artist that's performing, how do they answer these questions? How do they answer the questions, how do we know? How do they answer the question, what's really real? How do they answer the question, what's right or wrong? You start to see how all of the things that they're proposing and they're saying comes out of these three elements. These become the fundamental elements of anybody's worldview, and they're the ones that, that influence the decisions 
that they make, the viewpoints that they hold, the positions that they take. This is one of the ways Christians understanding this can effectively interact with their non-Christian friends and relatives. When you start to raise these issues and have people explain how they've come to these conclusions. As I see it, the answers we give to those questions are revolve around what is most important in this world to me. What I see is the most important thing mm -hmm. or things. And that affects my answers to those questions. Very I much just, so. What is important to me? And I create a worldview depending upon what is important to me. And there there and becomes some, a lot of elements that influence your worldview. Yes, and to your education, right. what you do in entertainment, all those kinds of different things influence your worldview. And it comes right down, as I see it, and some philosophers have said this, as you know, that our worldview is based largely upon what is important, what is most important to me. What we deem to be valuable. Yeah, exactly. And that is not objective truth, is it? No, that, not that's really. Very subjective. Very subjective. Now, people say, well, how does this apply to origins? One of the examples that I give when I, when I discuss this, especially as related to origins, is I say, okay, imagine we took Stephen Jay Gould, Harvard's paleontologist, and we put him in front of a huge fossil find. Now, Stephen Jay Gould is an atheist. If he stood in front of the world's greatest collection of fossils for 100 years, he would never see evidence for creation. Now, if we took Steve Austin, say, from the Institute of Creation Research, who's a Christian geologist, who's a theist, we put him in front of the same collection of fossils for 100 years, he would never see evidence for evolution. Well, why not? The data is the same for both. The reason being because the conclusions that they draw from the data are not drawn just from the data, but are affected by elements of their worldview. Mm -hmm. So it's not... Hard-boiled, cold science, is it? It's not hard-boiled, cold science by any means. <laughs> That's something. Thank you, Greg. Greg Hull is, as I said, the executive director of the Bible Science Association. They have a wonderful newsletter, the Bible Science Newsletter, and they'd be glad to send you a sample copy of that newsletter. You can write to the Bible Science Association, Post Office Box 33220, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55433. Ask for a sample. Or you could call 1-800-422-4253. That's 1-800-422-4253. And just ask, and you'll send your catalog. And they've got some wonderful Christian books that deal with the whole subject of creation. They have a wonderful radio program also. Creation Moments. Creation Moments. That they do. And uh, this is being heard in radio stations around the country. And, and beyond, too. And beyond, that's, that's right. That's right, internationally. And also, um, if you would be interested in an audio cassette tape of this program, you could write to Origins, care of Cornerstone Television, or CTV for short, Wall, Pennsylvania, 15148-1499. Send $5 to Origins and ask for program number OR9314. That's OR9314, a $5 contribution, and we'll send, it, send, send you an audio cassette of this program. Greg Hall gets down to some very basic issues. Thank you, Greg. We appreciate your That's sharing. Nice. Uh, maybe you haven't thought about it, but it's very important.
Cornerstone Television wishes to thank all our faithful viewers whose consistent prayers and financial support have made this program possible.